Welcome to episode 75 of Adult Music, a podcast with music for the mature mind. And it's been a hot summer and stormy this week, Mike. Stormy this week. Stormy outside. Lots of thunder. Today, too. Yeah, today. Right before the podcast started. Yeah, it's, it's been rather nice. So if you hear any rumbling out there, that's uh, still some of that. It's supposed to be clearing up, though, I think, a bit this week, which will yeah. be nice. Get some better summer weather coming in. And I thought, at least in jazz, uh, new releases might slow down, but there's been quite a few every wow. day. Uh, still in classical, out. they have slowed down. <laughs> so, oh, okay. But I've got a huge backlog, so no worries, listeners. We got a lot of, That's we have a lot to talk about on this end. And uh, this evening, we've got all American music. Do we? All, do we? We have in classical. Yeah, in jazz too. In jazz too. I want to say something about. Uh, you know, we've we've been kind of reaching out to a lot of the uh, musicians that uh, we talk about. Like, and the jazz musicians often respond, which is very cool. We get to talk to them. Sometimes we even get to interview them. The classical musicians ne- never. Response. <laughs> I even tried to get a. I, I guess they all have like these whole these levels of people you have to go through. So, but even some right. of the um, the the people on the kind of more independent labels. Even so, there's I think there's a whole there's, there's a lot of machinery that involves them. I never really I got little comments from them, but that's about it. No, I think I know. you know in uh, the jazz world, a lot of things happen. You know from contact right this guy called me to come play on this gig and this and that kind of thing you know classical recitals and things are in more kind of formal spaces that require set up yeah they require a lot of people to so you probably have a lot more levels of agents to go through and that kind of thing so but we'll keep trying yeah we'll keep trying it's a long way to the top if you want a podcast (laughs) as acdc said (laughs) (laughs) um I'll try that again. <laughs> yeah, okay, you do that. Uh, before we get into the music this evening, I want to remind the listeners that in the episode description, you can find links for Spotify and Apple Music uh, to all the music we'll discuss. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, our preferred streaming platform. Uh, you can also listen to the podcast there. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. Now, if you don't see the full description or active links on whatever app or platform you listen to us on right now, uh, come on over to our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, and you'll find everything clear and easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe uh, wherever you listen to us. If you take a moment, give us a ranking or write a short review. That helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. That helps us get more listeners, and that makes us happy. Uh, Also, you can come over and check us out on Facebook. Look for our page there. You can leave a comment or message there. Um, You can also contact us directly with any comments or questions by email. That's at adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And let's see, this week, I think every day I posted some new jazz release first thing in the morning. Yeah, you've been really... What, do you, what would be the equivalent of trigger happy for the um, <laughs> Facebook posts? Yeah. <laughs> I got I to gotta get on my game here. I don't know. I'm an early riser. So when I get my coffee, uh, the first thing I do is come over and check the new release lists. And mm-hmm. you know, some days there's few, but some days I'll have, you know, as many as six or seven. And then I usually take the one I thought is, you know, really got something uh, special to it with some appeal and I'll post that. So if you uh, run through all of the podcast uh, choices and you still need more, your daily jazz (laughs) fix, just look at the Facebook page. (laughs) Who could possibly? But but apparently those people are out there. (laughs) Could be. There's some good ones there too. Um, So hopefully we'll 
get those into an episode uh, in this week yeah. and there's more to classical come. i think they take the summer off they'll go to the, the beach and then september the new releases start coming out again mm. there's not much much hap- not much happening in august there are a few things but not so many then like oh, september october the the heavy duty one, one thing that we get in um august and this happens in mid-august is we get the uh the uh gramophone awards um nominees and i'm always interested to look at that because this is records from um mid the middle of 2021 to about oh maybe march or april 2022 so it's kind of it's a chance to look back once more at these records a lot of which we probably have already talked about on this show but uh it gives me a chance to remember them and re-listen so i really enjoy a lot of that when those those lists come out pretty interesting the gramophone awards they are they pick they have good picks there Generally Unlike really, the Grammy Awards, good years over Grammy <laughs> Unlike the Grammy Awards, <laughs> but the Grammy Awards again. Well, yeah, they have their favorite artists. That's the I know. thing. I don't know. That that doesn't seem to be the case in the Gramophone Awards because they um they have this odd voting procedure and sometimes some really weird records yeah. get in there. You know, I don't know how they do it, but anyway, looking forward to that list, Gramophone. If anybody's listening, yeah. Let's see if we missed anything when it comes out. Yeah. I, I kind of doubt it, though. I think I heard every classical CD like that came out. That's possible. Well, that's that's impossible. But I mean, every like big one, any you know. Yeah. But I think that's going to happen this year too. Wouldn't mind uh, getting a little more um, cash inflow here, so they could hear a lot more. But you know, we'll have to see what's. Uh, we have to Wait figure for that out a way sponsorship to, that. to come through. We need a sponsorship or yeah. something. Yeah. Anyway, this week, uh, boy. We had a, took some time to get through uh, this uh, classical list here because it's a collection of something you never hear anymore and certainly yeah. certainly not this much of it all in one place. Uh, so that yeah. was kind of unique. This is um, what he's talking about, what Russ is talking about. The first, yeah, the, our first classical release is William Bolcom. Now, in, in, we have three American composers on the classical part of the program today and they're all contemporary composers, so they're all... Still with us, although William Bolcom is he's 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 getting up there, let's say in mm. years, but he's apparently still still going strong. Uh, William Bolcom, American composer, The Complete Rags, and this is played by. I've been wanting to talk about this album for a few months now. Um, this is played by Mark Andre Amlan on the piano, or if you're American, Hamelin, Mark Andre Hamelin. I've heard him pronounce the name both ways, mm. and this is on the Hyperion label, which means. You can only sample it. You can't stream it. All right. So you're going to have to um, uh, deal with that. Okay. Now, what? Here's here's the thing. There's a little bit of American history here. Um, in two stages, in fact. Mm. Um, he Bolcom is he's 84 years old now. Okay. And he wrote the booklet notes for this, which you can read on the Hyperion website. You don't have to buy the uh, CD to actually be able to read them, and they're very interesting. I recommend that you go and. Check out what he has to say. Now, he talks about, okay, the thing is, you and I, Russ, um, were actually alive at the time when Ragtime made its comeback. We kind of think of tunes like The Entertainer as always having been around. It's like a staple of the uh, piano Mm -hmm. repertoire. Now, if you're a student, piano student in America, you're definitely going to learn to play that piece and probably everywhere else as well (laughs) because it's a really famous tune. Mm -hmm. But it was unknown when I was um, born. Really, uh, it had disappeared, and it really just made a come come comeback with the uh, the film The Sting. Right. Um, when that George Roy Hill film came out with uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford in 1973, that was really Scott Joplin's Rags, and especially that one, The Entertainer, were sort of the thematic uh, music of the film. 
and um, suddenly people were ragtime crazy. But actually, that um, revival had been going on for some time. Now, in the 1960s, people will probably remember, well, remember, um, people will know that there was a big folk revival mm-hmm. in the early 60s, and um, people would sing old folk songs. You can get a, there's a take on this in the Coen Brothers film, Inside Lewin Davis, so you can kind of get a feel for that period uh, from that movie. And But there was also a big uh, ragtime revival in the, the, uh, Late 60s, let's say. Mm-hmm. The 60s were a time of really uh, big discovery, looking back at the past as well as like create creating new uh, forms. It was a really fertile period. Um, Bolcom, his, his interest in ragtime started when he was asked about the um, existence of a ragtime opera by Scott Joplin. Somebody had just asked him mm. this. And at the time, Bolcom and the rest of the world, except for a few researchers and musicians, didn't know who Scott Joplin was. You know, he's he's world famous now. Mm. But uh, this is, we've got to go back to the 1960s here. Um, Joplin's opera was the stuff of legend. I remember hearing it talked about, too, when I was really, really young, even as a teenager, because I was already, like, hearing stuff about classical music. Um, and it was eventually found. Uh, it's called Tremonisha. I've still, to this day, not heard it. Huh. You know? Have you heard it? No. Yeah. I mean, it's. Um, I'm pretty sure it's been recorded. Um, it's, um, it's a, I guess, yeah, a ragtime opera. I mean, you, you have to hear it just because it's the only one in existence, right. probably. You know? So I'm going to have to seek that out and hear it finally. Um, anyway, Bolcom started exploring Joplin's rags after that, and along with a whole field of uh, turn of the 19th to 20th century piano ragtime. It was really the style then. Um, Joplin rags were soon later were recorded by Joshua Rifkin. Many of you might know his name. And uh, Gunther Schuller recorded period mm-hmm. instrumentations of Joplin's music, uh, which he found in Joplin's publisher John Stark's book, The Red Back Book, which was the source for the music in the movie The Sting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might want to revisit that movie too. There's, there's a lot of history here, a lot of good stuff. The theme song for the film was The Entertainer, and um, that was my personal introduction to ragtime. I was seven years old when The Entertainer came into my life, and really, I think, most Americans' lives at that point. Um, Everyone played it after the film came out. I learned it on the piano at the time, and um, the rest is history, I guess. It's now a staple. Anyway, um, let's see. I talk about here the uh, folk revival here. From 1968 onwards, a group of young American composers wrote new traditional style rags. It was like a bug they got. They just started doing this, you know, kind of like if you're writing letters back and forth or doing a puzzle in the mail or playing chess by mail or something. They started writing rags. Um, They loved the music, and audiences did too. They would play it at their concerts, and uh, it would get a lot of appreciation. Um, Bolcom describes what they did as picking up a dropped thread of the emerging American tradition. Hmm. Um, The way I understand ragtime, it was derived from marches. So marches were really big in America at the time. Think of John Philip Sousa. Um, Ragtime was in 2-4 like a march, except that it had syncopated rhythms, so you couldn't really march to it but that made it really kind of um uh interesting you know mm-hmm. this that that rhythmic uh, syncopation um this eventually expanded out into the swinging 4-4 of stride piano uh which is you think of pianists like james p johnson willie the lion smith 
Fats Waller, Lucky Roberts, Mrs. Mills, and Mary Lou Williams, all of who are going to figure in um, uh, Bolcom's kind of in, sort of uh, rags here. Um, and uh, once Stride came and then Swing, Ragtime was just left behind. It was just forgotten, like uh, which happens, you know, fads come and go. But um, it came back in the 1960s when it was rediscovered. Um, Bolcom says that the Ragtime Revival dissipated by 1975, and in fact, the majority of the rags on this album were composed between the years 1967 and 1975. Remember, these were all by William Bolcom. There were other composers composing new rags at the time, too. But Bolcom says that he and his fellow young composers of the late 1960s internalized rag in such a way that their subsequent music became profoundly changed whatever styles they pursued later. I really like huh. that. It's kind of yeah. like it, it's kind of like it got dyed into their sort of um, yeah. musical style, you know, and you, you couldn't get it out after that. Okay. All right. So the pieces on this album, played by Marc-Andre Amlan, um, are ordered uh, not in the order they were composed. They were ordered to make a good program. Um, so I'll be referring to uh, Bolcom's booklet notes a lot. They're really excellent. As I said, you should read them. Um and you should buy the CD too. Now, this is a two CD set or a two hour and 10 minute program. That's a lot of rags. That's a lot of rags. <laughs> too much for one sit down. Too much for one sitting, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, you could hear the whole two hours of it if you're kind of have it on in the background doing something else. It'll definitely set an atmosphere. But you want to sit down and listen to these because they're really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, the rhythm of a. Now, to be honest, the program is arranged, and Bolcom has. He they're not all really rags. There's a lot of stride style piano in this as well. But um, nevertheless, I mean, this it's a lot of a similar kind of thing. Okay, it's all piano, you know, all these sort of things. Um, so I suggest you listen um, in parts. All right. Yeah. So, Anyway, let's start going through these. These were pretty amazing. I the first of all, let's talk about Marc Andre Amlan's piano playing. He gets the style beautifully. Okay, um, a lot of classical musicians when they play jazz, they can tend to rush it. Nah, he's very laid back here, and he gets the full tone out of these. They, I think, these sound very authentic. Actually, he he really does get the style. Um, also, the recording is absolutely beautiful. Now, in a reg, you never get. Um, extreme dynamics although he does give us a lot of really beautiful quiet passages in these but mm. there are never any real fortissimos in a rag they're, they're, they tend to be kind of laid back and sort of dusky sounding you know end of the day sitting on the porch uh, drinking your sweet tea I guess kind of feeling <laughs> <laughs> okay on your veranda Anyway, let's take a let's take a look at these. We're starting with uh, CD one. Now, if you're going to be well, you can't stream them, so I guess I'm just going to talk about the CD. Okay, you can actually buy an MP3 of this from Hyperion as well on their website. Okay, CD one uh, starts uh, with Yubi's Lucky Day. The Yubi of the title is Yubi Blake, um, and um, this is a supercharged evocation of Yubi Blake's Charleston Rag, and Yubi's friend Charles. Lucky Roberts, great stride pieces. Okay. Um, yeah, there are some quirky rhythmic patterns in this work that Amlan, who's a really virtuosic pianist, um, navigates without breaking a sweat. He's got a really great sense of the rhythm of these, even though they they can get kind of 
naughty. Um, Amelon gives us some subtle rubato in the repeats of the opening themes at the end. It's a charming opening to the survey, and that rubato we're going to hear a lot on this recording. He he really does kind of go back to that uh, technique quite a lot. It works well, but if you listen to the whole album straight through, it's, it, can, it can get wearing. Second, Epithalamium. This is a celebration of the marriage of Diane Skomars and Bolcom's friend and collaborator Max Morath. It's got a warm-hearted theme at the beginning, and you can discern the rag rhythm underneath. Amlan takes this piece sensitively. He adds slight retards for expression as the melody winds on, and dynamics come into play in the repeats of the opening material, as Amlan will sensitively quieten the material as he plays. He gets enough variety out of his attack and general sound that the listener stays interested, and there's always something of interest to hear. Track three, Tabby Cat Walk. This is I like this one a lot, actually. Um, it's really charming. It's got a creeping light rhythm, uh, I guess portraying a jazzy tabby cat. Um, instantly likable uh, melody and kind of style. Um, so this would be a good one to sample if you want to hear what this album is like. Um, in the last minute, we hear some sudden stops as the piece disappears into complete silence, then continues on. Yeah. As if the cat hears something and pauses <laughs> in its jazzy walk. I really love that. I thought it was great. Yeah, a really charming piece. Stop and go ending there. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Okay, number four, Knockout, a rag. Compo- this is a late one, composed in 2008. Uh, requested by uh, Philip Brunel for a tour with the Prairie Home Companion Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And this one uses knuckles on the piano fallboard, which you can easily hear. And we'll hear this again in Serpent's Kiss in a few tracks, too. The nu- You'll hear the knuckles on the fallboard at the beginning. I always call that a dust board, you know, because people mm. drop it to keep dust off the keys, I guess. Um, and throughout. Um, it's a very particular technique requiring rhythmic knocking. I'm kind of wondering how he's doing it. Is he rolling his knuckles on the board and it's just being picked up by the mic? Uh, I don't really know. I'd like to see it happen. It's not outstanding. You'll hear it, but... yeah. You'll have to listen closely to figure out what's going on there. Yeah, it's not like someone's like, you know, knocking no, like that. No. It's kind of like more. It's subtle. Yeah, it's, it's really subtle. Yeah, like kind of. I can't. I can't do it. There's no room. Okay. Um, the piece itself has that dragging rhythm that rags generally have, though this is one is a livelier one at the beginning, and there's a rather jarring chord just before the resolve at the very end. Fun, fun. The fifth track is called Rag Tango. Again, we're getting quite a bit of variety here. This one really yeah. is one, probably the oddest one on the album. Um, Bolcom says Joplin's Brazilian contemporary Ernesto Nazareth was unknown to him when he wrote this in 1971, and he later used the main theme of this uh, Rag Tango in a movement labeled Gingando from a suite for cello and piano that celebrated that Brazilian composer. Um, it's got an odd rhythm. You want to call it a tango, but the rag rhythm gets in the way of that. It's kind of <laughs> unique sound. It was hard to make out what it was. It's, there's a music box quality to the opening material. It's quietly played. Uh, the first contrasting section is louder and has a more distinct tango character to it, though it's still not quite a tango. This is a pretty long piece, too, at 8 minutes and 43 mm. seconds. Most of them clocking in around 5 or 6 minutes. Yet it's got a lot of interesting music in it. And I particularly liked the quiet section that's playing at 4 minutes and 40 seconds. All right, tracks 6 to 9. I should mention, um, a lot of these were 
kind of either released or thought of as sets, but they're none of them are um, um, presented that way on this album. Although the great the ghost ones are, but we'll get to that in a minute. But here we have a, a set of rags called the Garden of Eden, and these really had to be played together because they have a theme, and mm. that theme is Adam and Eve. Um, <laughs> set to ragtime. <laughs> Yeah. All right, the uh, sixth track, Old Adam. Uh, this piece is known as uh, Chicken Scratch, one of the many animal dances of 100 years ago, and it contains a reminiscence of Chris Smith's hit song, Ball in the Jack. <laughs> <All right. laughs> it's got a lively ragging opening, and the contrasting section stays at the same volume, but changes the melodic material. It's very brief at 2 minutes and 18 seconds, ends with a sly, quiet chord. Track seven, The Eternal Feminine. This one will be about Eve. Um, the harmonically devious third strain invokes the mystery of woman, according to Bulkham. Mm. This piece has a slow gliding rhythm with a sequence of repeated chords acting as the first part of the theme. The second strain continues as much as the first did with the same mood. The first strain repeats, quieter, with a bit of rubato. And the third strain's occasionally odd harmonic notes are pretty unusual in a rag. And I guess that's what the... The mystery of woman is is evoked there. It's mostly straightforward, though, especially in its rhythm. And we get to track eight, the serpent's kiss. Um, Bolcom met UB Blake towards the end of his life um, in 1969 when Blake was 86. And uh, this particular piece, the serpent's kiss, became a favorite of UB Blake's. He insisted Bolcom play it for him when oh. they were together. Pretty interesting. Um, so UB Blake would have been someone great to know back then because he would have been around yeah. in this period and he would kind of know how it, you know, what it was like. You know, mm -hmm. we, we don't really have so, well, we have records now because of people like UB Blake and scholars, but to have lived through that would have been really something. Um, has an aggressive repeated note rumbling pattern at the beginning, uh, making this the most unusual rag we've heard so far. Um, probably why UB Blake liked it. It sounds devious rhythmically. There's some pretty interesting harmonies and dramatic rhythmic breaks in this. Listen at a minute and 15 seconds and afterwards. This is a pretty dramatic piece with a lot of surprising contrast in it. It's rhythmic. Uh, the contrast is rhythmic tempo and harm tempo contrast and harmonic contrast too. At three minutes and afterwards, there's some sort of tapping noise, perhaps a tapping on the wood of the piano. I really can't make it out. It sounds different than what we heard in Knockout earlier. A uh, lively approach to the end, which ends on a thunderous crash on the bass notes, followed by whistling from the pianist, I guess, <laughs> and a final cadence. <laughs> a really odd piece. I didn't want to play this when I heard it. <laughs> it was good, though. I liked it. I was wondering if, if those percussive things were like mouth noises, like a kind of clicking thing or something, you know? Because they're really faint yeah. and hard to figure out what's going on there, yeah. This one reminded me of, like, a, an old silent movie soundtrack with a train yeah. coming to a precipice. It gets that dangerous kind of, you know, tension right. going, and uh, then it gets spacey, and, like, then it gets kind of drunken, rolling figures. There's all kinds of stuff going on here. Yeah, there, there are going to be a few of these that actually do evoke silent movies of yeah. that era, because pianists would often play jazzy. Yeah. Um, things in uh when you see silent movies now when they're revived depending on who who was um doing it if it's an american film they'll usually use um jazz 
to mm. accompany it, especially if it's a comedy or something. But if it's a European film, you'll get an organ or you'll get something a little <laughs> more romantic, you know, yeah. classical sounding. You know, it's really funny mm. um, how these how these things all kind of were present on you know around each other at the time. Anyway, track nine through Eden's gates. Here, Adam and Eve calmly cakewalk out of paradise. <laughs> a slow floating rhythm at the beginning, softly played. The theme is wistful and regretful, but not exactly sad. Uh, the rhythm sees to that. Um, you can't have a sad. You can have like a kind of downcast sort of rag, but I don't think you can have an actual sad one. There's something about that rhythm that's always going to keep yeah. you going. I think that's that's really true of. Um, yeah, I guess jazz can be sad, but even the you know the rhythm still kind of uplifts you a little mm. bit. Even the blues is like that. It's very pretty, though, especially with its echo of the theme in the higher ends of the piano, um, and it ends quietly. Okay, we're done with the um, the suite there, the um, uh, Garden of Eden suite. On to track 10, California Porcupine Rag. Great title. This one's from 1968. Um, Bolcom used to send composer... This is an interesting story. Um, Bolcom used to send the composer William Albright, uh, who died in 1998, um, uh, we'll hear a collaboration between uh, Albright and Bolcom at the very last uh, <laughs> and very odd rag on this album. Um, he used to send um, Albright rags in the mail. And this rag was originally titled Albright Albright. Great title. <laughs> was an, And it was an answer to one of Albright's more outrageous and challenging efforts. And personally, I wouldn't mind hearing those after this. Yeah. I mean, it could, could be interesting. That could be another... Mm. Um, Marc-Andre Amelon recording project. I wouldn't mind hearing that. Which maybe some other pianists will want to take it up too. Who knows? Um, it was renamed after Bolcom cited a porcupine in California's Siskiyou Mountains. It's lively, starting loud with some interesting melodic twists. And this comes across as more repetitive than other eggs we've heard on the album. But the odd melodic additions and occasional passing odd harmony make it interesting. Uh, the piece raised a smile for me um, due to its energy and... Amlan's wit in the phrasing, so I think Amlan's performance really lifts this one a bit too. He's got a he, he's got a really good sense of humor, does Mark Andre Amlan, as those of us who have been listening to all of his recordings since the nineties. I think I've heard every one. <laughs> no. Anyway, uh, track eleven, the Gardenia, written in nineteen seventy, starts in sunny major and ends in passionate minor and recalls the dark mood of another rag called The Lost Lady, which we'll hear later. Um, Lost Lady, by the way, refers to um, a failed marriage, and here I guess the marriage starts well and goes badly. Um, a gentle theme in the major with a light, um, sweeping, lightly sweeping wide rhythm in the bass. It's very pretty. At 3 minutes and 50 seconds, and in the repeat, you can hear a bit of uh, Trinkle Tinkle by Thelonious Monk. Mm. Um, I don't know that the end is passionate. I'd say it's more resigned. It's a dun da 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 it's got to be. Because hmm. the, the piece would have been around at the time, so I think he's 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 quoting it. That's my opinion. <laughs> anyway, track 12, a title close to my heart, The Brooklyn Dodge. Uh-uh. Okay. <laughs> By the way, any baseball fans out there? The Brooklyn Dodgers, now the Los Angeles Dodgers, got their name. Um, they were originally called um, the Brooklyn uh, Trolley Dodgers because apparently trolleys in Brooklyn would come careering around on their tracks and you had to really run to get out of the way. Hmm. So <laughs> the Brooklyn Dodgers got their name from people running out of the way of trolleys. Anyway, the Brooklyn Dodge, 1972, written in the mold of James P. Johnson. 
This happily skips along to an upbeat rhythm. It gets up high in the piano's range for the repeat of the opening material. I'm noticing here that the higher notes are more than the left speaker, meaning the listener is sitting behind the piano. So mm. it's almost like you're playing the piece yourself, I guess. And you're yeah. hearing, you're hearing right. the, the bass in the left, you know. No, the higher notes are in the left. No, you're behind the piano. So the, yeah. the pianist is facing you. Yeah, sorry. The pianist is facing you. You're kind of looking at him. You can't see the keyboard. Okay. Usually we hear a piano in concert from the side, but the recording is so clear that the position of the mic has something to do with it. The, the clarity. Okay. You get a sense of the entire piano's range spread out before you. This is a happy-go-lucky piece straight through. The Brooklyn Dodge. All right. And the uh, 13th track, uh, Contentment. This is written in 2015. It is Bolcom's last composed rag dedicated to his wife, the mezzo-soprano and cabaret singer Joan Morris. So this is the last one he ever wrote, um, and it ends CD1. Nice. I mean, nice programming. Um, it's 7 minutes and 38 seconds. Pretty long. I guess uh, Bolcom didn't want to really stop writing rags, so he kind of stretched <laughs> out as long as he could. It's got a content feel to it. It's rather slow and shuffles along with a sense that all is well with the world. Uh, just past a minute and 50, 50 seconds, we hear a bit of that uh, trinkle tinkle rising figure again. Dun da da da, dun da da da. Listen for it. Um, the entire piece is relatively quiet and tranquil in its tone, as though remembering personal intimate moments. Lovely performance by Amlan, and really throughout this program. It's nice how, at the end, the piece resolves and we get a little coda restating the theme a bit more slowly, one more time, as the Balkum is reluctant to let go of this particular rag. Okay, CD1 is over, and actually, this really is two programs, because CD2 also will end with a last rag, sort of. We'll get to that. But it starts with the most famous of um, Balkum's rags. Um, these are set together as three ghost rags. Um, they weren't thought of as ghost rags when um, Bochum wrote them, but they became known as that and then got published together. The first one is called the Graceful Ghost Rag, the most famous rag. I played this one. I I still have the score. Actually, I have the score of the three ghost rags, but I've only ever played this one. Um, written in 1970, because I wanted to play rags too back in the day. They, were, they were, weren't too hard and um, mm. they were fun. Um, this was written in memory of Bolcom's father's death in 1970. I didn't know that when I mm. <laughs> played it, but this is, uh, um, let's see, in the context of all these rags, it doesn't particularly stand out, but, it, but except that a lot of, if you're going to know any of them, you'll know this one. It's appealing, though, and I really enjoyed Amlan's interpretation in the con contrasting strains. My version, I have to say, didn't sound too different from this, but of course, this is far more accomplished. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyway, second, The Poltergeist, 1971, explores nearly every frozen appoggiatura and substitution in the harmonic book. I couldn't really make these out listening. <laughs> I should look at the score, I guess. Uh, this one is very noty, and it dances awkwardly given the rhythm and probably the frozen appoggiaturas as well. You're just not hearing those resolves. Uh, some very odd harmonies punctuate this piece, especially in the third strain with its odd sudden pauses as well. And the uh, third one is called Dream Shadows, 1971. The pianist Paul Jacobs, one of my favorite pianists of all time, by the way, uh, look up his playing, especially in Debussy. Um, the pianist Paul Jacobs called this a white telephone rag because to him, 
it recalled the elegant black and white 1930s and 40s movie dramas starring Betty Davis, Gene Tierney, or Joan Crawford, wearing peignoirs, holding white telephones. So he kind of it just reminded him of that era. It's got a slow kind of billowy rhythm. I kind of thought about that as, you know, in these movies, the wind blowing the curtains out in these gigantic rooms with a bed in them. <laughs> hmm. uh, towards the end of the first minute, it gets a bit dramatic towards the end of the first minute. It's fairly long also, seven minutes and 26 seconds. We get a repeat of the main strain, this time a bit slower, with Amlan's characteristic rubato at these stages. Track four, Rag and Rudy. This is CD2 track four. Great title, too. Celebrates the warm friendship Bolcom enjoyed with the pathfinding scholar of jazz and ragtime, Rudy Blesch, and evokes the playful rags of James Scott. Um, this sounds like an old-style rag, upbeat and cheerful. The contrasting strains hold back a bit, and the slight rubato is present in the slower sections. Track 5 is Epitaph for Louis Chauvin. This evokes the Gallic Creole spirit of Chauvin's Heliotrope Bouquet. Now, I always thought this was a Scott Joplin piece because I have the score, or I had when I was younger. Um, and um, it's um, it says that it's by Scott Joplin. Um, the last two strains were contributed by Joplin, but it's Louis Chauvin's piece. Mm. I remember when I was young that this rag was credit to him, of like I said, and I played this one too, or I at least um, read my way through it. Um, anyway, finally I know. There it is. Um, this particular one is a lovely slow rag played with a sensitive rhythm and tone by Amlan. This one positively has that amber tint feel that we get from the period due to photographs. It's got a dusky end of the day, you know, sun going down kind of feel. I have to say, I'm very impressed by the tenderness Amlan is able to project in these pieces. It's not a quality I heard from him in his younger, super virtuoso barnstorming years, when I got to know him in the 90s. His playing, I mean, I don't know him. But something that emerged in his playing in the last 15 years, and it seems to be getting deeper. He's kind of calming down a bit. I'm really enjoying that in his playing. It's a new color, I think, for him. Uh, for the repeat of the first round, he's he's done, been doing this in his, like, Classic, more classically oriented albums as well. Um, let's see. For the repeat of the first strain, there's a slowing and a bit of rubato. Listen at about 2 minutes and 20 seconds for that. As the harmony gets broken up in the slightly staggered chords, there are some odd pauses in the rhythm after 3 minutes and 30 seconds that draw the ear. Track 6, Seabiscuit's Rag. This <laughs> is such great titles. This shows Bolcom's increasing exposure to James P. Johnson and his contemporaries, inspired by the big city novelty rags and stride pieces of the 1910s. And I would claim this is more of a stride piece. Um, it's, it's contrast. It's a confident, sunny piece walking down the city street on a beautiful day without a problem in the world. This puts me in mind of the beginning of a lot of old comedy or animated shorts. You could, I would imagine this accompanying a, mo a silent movie. It sounds like the accompaniment to a silent film. I like the boogie-woogie style split octaves that we hear in the melody and the bass from about the 250 second, 2 minute 50 second mark on. The split octaves like da na 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 You know, when you hear that in boogie-woogie. I love that sound. Anyway. Track 7, Estela Rag Latino, 2010. Commissioned by the pianist Robert Satterley in memory of William Albright, who um, Bolcom used to send rags in the mail. Um, 
It follows the Latin tradition of giving women's names to dance pieces and is dedicated to Satterley and to the Argentinian-born pianist Estela Olevsky and is a melding of tango and rag. So we have another one. This is the mm. second time we've heard something like this. It has an odd, discordant, trebly opening. Once this odd intro is finished, we get a f full-bodied writing from 19 seconds on with that opening section coming back. This has an odd, broken Latin-style rhythm to it. It reminds me a little bit of Jelly Roll Morton's like Mamanita, which kind of sounds... um hmm. Between the, the melody and the bass, they, they kind of interact with each other in this odd, kind of broken-up way. Um, but only in that section this happens. Amlan positively revels in oddities such as this. His rhythmic feel is unerring, and he's really the ideal pianist for this type of composed music. There's a really odd change of feel that plunges into the bass end of the piano at 3 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, this particular piece is prof for professionals only. <laughs> Unless you really have a lot of time on your hands to relearn it. Um, track 8, Fields of Flowers, 1977. We're now out of the period in which Bolcom wrote most of his rags. From 1977 on, he wrote them only for special occasions feeling that he made his major contribution to the cause. Um, this one was inspired by Tom Constantin, a multi-talented pianist and composer who played keyboard on the first Grateful Dead recordings. Oh. Boy, people just interacted in those days <laughs> a lot. Uh, a Quiet Rag. Uh, this one's quiet with a gentle, quiet opening with a little bass and a gentle theme in the opening. It has a really early jazz feel to it, more stride than ragtime. Amlan captures the feeling of this rhythm so perfectly that it's just a joy to listen to. Uh, it's got a dusky quality. I use that word a lot for rags. They always they always remind me of sunset. And with a lot of dust in the sky, the sky is brown, not red kind of thing. <laughs> um, that's so many. It's got that dusky quality so many slow rags have. Amlan also pulls out a lot of the harmonic niceties of the piece, particularly in the melodic parts of the bass line. Fields of Flowers. Listen for that one, too. That's another one to sample. All right, track nine, Incinerator Rag, CD2 track nine, uh, Incinerator Rag, uh, close to the standard rag form of Joplin and his contemporaries. Um, it's got an appealing melody and syncopated march rhythm. Amlan has a few nice rippling scale patterns that he plays with smoothly and with character. This one sounds fun to play. Um, lovely quiet ending on the final chord. Track 10, CD2, Knight Hubert. <laughs> <laughs> like, like my buddy over there, Russell yeah. Hubert. This one is uh, recalls um, Lucky Roberts' style. Uh, his greatest song was Moonlight Cocktail. He was a New York Society pianist, so I guess sort of like uh, Cole Porter was. Um, so this is called Night Hubert. It's a happy-go-lucky rhythm with a sunny theme over it. At about 40 seconds, there's a nice brief free rhythm that sends us, sets us free for a moment, then back to the cheerful material. The harmonization fills up as the piece moves towards its close. It finishes with the melody in the high end and boogie-woogie patterns in the bass before quieting, quietening towards the final chord. Quietening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> quietening. That's a word I only ever I've read. I think I've never said it before. Hmm. You know, there are a lot of words like that. You have to say them. You're like, oh, how do I say this? How do you pronounce this word? Yeah, I don't usually use it as a verb. Yeah. Track 11, Lost Lady Rag. Okay, this is the one that Bolcom wrote as a lament for a failed marriage. I don't know if it's his failed marriage. He doesn't say. He just says a failed marriage. Anyway, it's got a forlorn melody fitting for the topic. 
This is a rag that manages to come across as a lament. Impressive manipulation of harmony here, and again, characterful playing from Amlan. Ends on an unresolved chord, really mid-phrase, and gives a sense of forlornness. It's, it's a touching piece. And for contrast with that, we have the Glad Rag, 1967. Hmm. This is the earliest rag on, in the collection, the first one Bulkham wrote, or that he published anyway. Um, there are quotes from Scott Joplin's opera, Tremonisha, in the transitional passage, in one of the transitional passages. This is an uplifting piece. Um, it's very glad indeed. It's mid-tempo and rather a study of the form, like, you know, being the first one, but charming all the same. The rhythm in the second strain has a start and stop quality to it, charming all the way through. Okay, now the next track, track 13, is pretty much the end of this program, with track 14 being like an encore. All right, so track 13 is um, The Last Rag, and Bolcom in, in this is written in 1968. Bolcom intended this to be The Last Rag he wrote. That's why he called it Last Rag. <laughs> but he wasn't finished yet. So we have The Last Rag, The Leg You Retended, pretty much ending the program on track on CD2. So it's, I would split these into two programs if I were listen, if I were you, even if, you're, if you buy the MP3. Um, it has a bit of a sad, elegiac quality to it. Nice program by programming by Amlan to put it towards the end of disc two while putting Bulkham's actual last rag at the end of disc one. Uh, both pieces have a sense of a curtain closing to them given all the other rags on the album and they fit well at the end. It's pretty straightforward at a slow tempo. But wait, there's one more surprise. Track 14, Brass Knuckles, hmm. uh, written in 1969. This is in collaboration with William Albright, um, who... Bulkham used to send rags in the mail. They got together for this one. Um, Albright and Bulkham uh, put this together as an antidote for the over-delicate rags we'd been writing that he, that Bulkham and he, him had been writing at the time, and really all the other composers around. Uh, the score is dotted with markings like brutal and loudish, <laughs> L-O-U-T, loudish. Okay. Bulkham wrote the first two strains, Albright the rest. <laughs> <laughs> this hmm. makes me want to hear some of Albright's rags, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's a collaborative rag pattern after those of the classic rag era. There were a lot of these. You could, um, you know, you want to sell your, you know, you got two famous names on a rag, then people would buy it and try to play it, you know. Uh, it's easily the wildest rag on the album. <laughs> Dissonant at the beginning, big and bold in the first strain, with some resonant crashes on the bass end of the piano. It's a fun piece with some jokey, quiet crashes thrown in among the loud ones. There's a teasing, quiet last strain with a loud chord to end the piece and the album. So this is a fantastic album, really, especially if you like the style or if you're interested in Bulkham's rags in general. You're never going to do better than this, and we're never going to get another album like this. Um, it's a feel-good album. It feels good all the way through. Excellently clear and clean recording that matches the performances. Uh, the dragging rhythm of these pieces makes it relaxing overall. It's wonderful to hear all of the rags in the collection. And the only real, there's no drawback to this except that it's very long. And though there's a lot of variety in the material, this rhythm is going to get to you after a while. And I think you need to break it up. But this is just a fantastic release. Go straight to the top of the uh year-end best recordings for me anyway then you'll you'll be hearing about this in december 
Yeah, I found it amazing that uh, Bolcom could be inspired to write in a ragtime idiom for more than half a century. <laughs> pretty amazing. Right. But um, I have to say, he comes up with an endless variety of melodies and moods in the different strains of you know all this huge collection. Uh, I also found it interesting to compare the earlier and later rags. I found the ones from the late 60s around the sting time uh, right. sort of seem to be in that very Joplin entertainer type mood. Uh, but then the later ones uh, from uh, you know, more recent years, they have a lot more dense and complex harmonies, maybe bringing right. in other influences of things he had, you know, worked on and uh, studied along the way. Um, so you can, you can get a different feel from the earlier and later ones uh, by comparing those. And as you said, uh, Amon's playing is, you know, spot on for the style and he's really enthusiastic right through there's a lot of recording to do here but uh yeah. you know he doesn't sound uh, fatigued or bored no he sounds point. really interesting uh, he sounds yeah. like he's having a really good time so yeah, yeah. i know yeah i'm not he's recorded a few like like composed jazz albums before mm. and the later ones i think are better i think he gets he has more of a feel he gets more of the feel now than he did on some of the earlier ones so mm. i was really happy to hear this one all right, moving on. We're going to get a kind of a little more serious here, although not too heavy. Um, American composer David Lang, born 1957 in Los Angeles, now based in New York. Uh, you might know him as the co-founder of the collective Bang on a Can, uh, who I started hearing, I think, in the 90s as well. Um, this is a, a set of pieces called The Writings, and uh, that's all written in lowercase, the stylization uh, hmm. All these pieces have all lowercase writing. Um, these, um, okay, this is performed by Capella Amsterdam uh, with Daniel Royce, R-E-U-S-S, -S, as the conductor, and it's on the Pentatone label. Okay. Now, these are um, all settings of the five Old Testament books associated with particular holidays in the Jewish year. And it is possible to chart the course of a year following them, according to Lang. Uh, the movements are arranged according to the yearly readings of these texts, but the texts are not set in their entirety here. Okay, now, these um, pieces were not um, written as a set. They were written over a period of, it looks like, uh, 15 years. Hmm. Maybe even more. Um, let me see here. Yeah, it looks like 15 years. And then at the end, he seems to have put them together. Um, there's not all that much information in the booklet notes, um, and I wanted to um, trace when the texts from the Old Testament texts were read in the Jewish calendar, so I actually had to do a lot of research on the internet for this, this was not in the booklet. Anyway, let's start talking about the music here. Um, the first um, movement or piece, I guess, in this is called Again. And it's after the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, this was written in 2005. I think this was the first one written as a single movement. And uh, it was read on Sukkot, which is a week-long festival that comes five days after Yom Kippur, generally in October. So we're starting at the end of the calendar year here for us. This is very easy on the ear, this music. Uh, the recording is clear. Lang's harmony is very spacious, enabling each voice to be heard individually. The harmony is very spare, 
enabling the spaciousness too. Um, the voice, the, the the listener doesn't have to do much work listening to this. It, it really comes to you, this music. Uh, the voices move in steady patterns, making the text easy to follow. Um, if one has it in front of, if you have it in front of you, um, it's a very spare and austere composition, excellently realized. Um, sound quality of the recording is fantastic. Clear, lots of space given to the voices, and there's a very telling section at around the 4 minute and 15 second mark when the upper, or women's, voices sing, What will happen before will happen again. It's isolated and sung without any overlapping text. It registers clearly as what the composer wants you to take away. He wants you to remember that line, What will happen before will happen again, the way it's uh, presented Mm. here. Nice touch. Track two, or I guess movement two, If I Am Silent, which is after the Book of Esther. Okay, we are now in uh, the uh, springtime. This is movement was the last to be commissioned and was... Oh, sorry, I got this from... Yeah, winter this is. It was the last to be commissioned, premiered in March 2019. Uh, Esther is read on um, Purim. The end of February or the beginning of March, commemorating the saving of the Jewish people from Haman, an official of the <laughs> Achaemenid Empire, who is planning to have all of Asia's Jewish subjects killed. Hmm. All of them. <laughs> Man. All right. I like the way that after the words, if I am silent, there's always at least a measure of actual silence. The harmony is consonant, making the listening easy and the text easy to decipher. That's going to be true of all of these pieces, really. It's an appealing, austere piece of music. The track is eight minutes long. And as a result, we hear the brief text twice. The third movement, For Love is Strong, which is after the Song of Songs. This was premiered in the year 2008. And the text is basically a list of all the similes found in the Song of Songs. So the Song of Songs is shortened here to its similes. Hmm. And the text of the Song of Songs is read on Passover, which is usually in April, the Spring Festival. The harmony resembles that of the previous two movements. In fact, uh, Lang seems set on this harmony for these um, pieces or this approach. I'm guessing we're hearing the austere style Lang wants these to be presented in. This particular movement is the longest so far. There's going to be one more about the same length, 12 minutes, 41 seconds. The lower voices, the men, repeatedly sing For Love is Strong as the upper female voices sing all of the similes. There are a lot of them. Uh, This movement is very repetitive and spare and a bit trance-inducing. It's beautifully sung with the women's voices headed towards the stratosphere towards the end. Always a nice effect. Track four, Where You Go after the Book of Ruth. This was premiered in 2015. Uh, The Book of Ruth is read on Shavat when the Torah was given to the Jewish people 3,300 years ago, between mid-May and mid-June. By now we understand the basic approach. There will be no harmonic surprises, only the beautiful spare settings. It's very, I would say, churchy. I guess in this case you'd say, um, uh, what, synagogue Synagogian? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I we can make up new words. Make up a new word. Yeah. This one clocks in at a minute and 13 seconds. Very short. Is that right? Or did I mistype that? Let me just check this. Oh, no, it's um, 10 minutes and 13 seconds. I dropped a zero there. A minute and 13 seconds. That would be really short. 10 minutes and 13 seconds. And features overlapping short murmuring phrases of the text. 
So the last section, this this is a little harder to make out unless you have it, the text in front of you. Um, the last section is especially lovely with the men's voices murmuring the don't make me section while soprano voices soar above. From the 7 minute 23 seconds mark on, you can hear that. Okay, the next track, track 5, Solitary, after the Book of Lamentations, premiered in 2016, read on Tisha Bay. I hope I'm saying Tisha Bav or Bay. What is that? I hope I'm saying these right. I know we have a lot of Jewish listeners. Um, anyway, doing the best I can. In July or August, it commemorates the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This movement is as long as the third, 12 minutes and 43 seconds, and consists of fragments of phrases that proceed with pauses. The men and women's voices are split, with the men stating the text first and the women trailing a beat or two behind. A third female or falsetto male voice emerges murmuring, my only hope is you, continuously, as this main text goes on. And then we get back to um, October again, and the... Uh the uh, Ecclesiastes text that we heard in track one. Track six is, again, again, changed return. Now here the score instructs the performers to sing this movement, which is the same as the first movement, differently than it was sung when first heard as the first movement. The idea being that the cycle, like the year, may repeat, but never exactly. So this is a repeat of the first movement. It sounds a bit faster here, but it's a few seconds longer. Um, in the in the t in the clock, uh, the rhythm is steadier without any pauses in the text and moves forward more with a sense of perpetual motion. It ends with repeats on the word again, as in "I will forget it all again," and hearing this repeated makes it seem more true. So anyway, this piece is beautiful and simple in its choral writing, as is the American way. We get a lot of this is really the American choral sound, unless you're getting a a gospel chorus or something like that. It's a stare, and it's a lovely listen. Excellent performance. Um, certainly worth hearing, um, and not really any work at all. This is a piece that comes to you, and if you like choral singing, it's a good piece to hear. Yeah, I called it uh, peaceful, easy listening. I guess so, yeah. There's nice vocal blends. Uh, interesting harmony. I like the passing harmonies uh, there's nothing terribly dissonant but a little kind of nice tension and uh, movement especially in the uh, second piece and yeah it's all pretty nice to hear i liked the kind of pure soprano voice tone in the fourth piece but i think i liked uh number one and two the best uh just sort of put me in a nice mood with that uh, as you say kind of austere lots of space yeah. And, Lots of space. Uh, really well recorded. Everything's very clear. You can hear all the yeah. individual voices. And uh, yeah, I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to. Could You could think of it as healing music, too. It's mm. kind of nice and clean. It doesn't, you know, it just sort of... It gets you in a kind of meditative mood. Yeah. It's it nice. makes your ear happy. It's got some really nice harmonies in it. Mm. Okay, so for our last <laughs> American uh, foray into American contemporary music, we have Peter Boyer, um, a, an album called Balance of Power Orchestral Works. And this is, con this is um, by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by the composer himself, Peter Boyer. And it's on the Naxos label, and it's the third release in a series of Peter Boyer recordings. On the Naxos label, and I got to tell you, after hearing this, I'm going to have to hear the other two because this is uh, me too. 
pretty uh sonically spectacular let's say this is the like meat and potatoes of what i really love about orchestral music uh, and about american here. music yeah. too yeah, american music i want to say something about american music first right? and i'm going to compare this you'll be interested to know to the current popularity of the movie top gun maverick okay now i read this week one of the things i did this week is um read an article by matt taibbi on his uh substack uh he wrote about uh, how top gun maverick is the big dumb movie that saved america because <laughs> uh, it's a fun movie mm. okay it's um doesn't it's not it's not explaining anything to you it's you know it's just you're sitting in the chair you're eating your popcorn and you, your eyes are popping out as you watch all these great action scenes and things like that it made people happy everybody seems to like it um anyway he wrote that an article on how this sense of fun was just what america needed right now it's probably true there's a lot of uh chaotic stuff going on there yeah well um peter boyer is also here to give america more of what it needs um <laughs> okay i'd argue that uh this is this is a fun, this is a really fun record as well. It doesn't make you do any work, and it's sonically big, <laughs> powerful. Huge. It's uh, it's pretty much the sonic equivalent in uh, classical composition form, I think, of maybe Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> it's a fun album. Hmm. Well, not all fun, but um, you, you know, there's no intellectual pretension in these works, and it's mostly pure fun. Although there is some sobriety in this. I want to kind of talk about before i get into this album something i read about american composers i read this um when i was I, around my college years or in my early 20s because i was reading a lot i was trying to learn a lot about classical music somebody had written that um in a review of a work by an american composer it, it was some um elegy for some or lament for some event that happened i think it was might have been for the uh the uh was that the not the space shuttle? Yeah, the space shuttle explosion mm -hmm. in the '80s when Reagan was president, and somebody had had written a piece to commemorate that. And um, the writer had said that Americans really don't do emotional depth or pain very well in their music. And I understand what he means. I mean, if you're going to listen, if you really want to hear like lacerating music, you go to people like Shostakovich, like the Eighth String Quartet, which will just completely change you <laughs> after you hear it um but i and i think he, he kind of said yeah americans are a little too um you know they, they don't really have that sense of um suffering really but i think um that's a, a gift in disguise while we have that from shostakovich and composers like Mahler, gustav Mahler, who does suffering exceptionally well um from american composers we get a lot of optimism and i think um you could equally truly say that no other country's composers anywhere in the world does optimism as well as american composers do and we're going to hear some yeah. of that Gershwin, on this Copeland, album i mean yeah the know, fanfare for the common man yeah. think of that how uplifting yeah. that is it kind of straightens your spine just to hear it you know um um, and make it hold together as music, too, of mm. course. Um, optimism may not be a deep artistic emotion, but the world needs more of it. And it's one of the things I think that most of the world likes about Americans. They're almost they, – their belief that everything's going to turn out well. Mm. 
it's something that I like about being American. I tend to have this this quality in myself. Um, and I've met a lot of people around the world who don't have it, but <laughs> every day. But that's what I'm there for—to spread a lot of sunshine. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's what people like the best. Even if they think we're stupid, they still think they. I think they secretly admire our optimism. How can mm. we possibly have this when the world is such a terrible place? Well, I think you make the world a better place by starting to be optimistic about it. I think that's what we think. So we're here to give you that gift. Um, uh, I think optimism in art is America's gift to the world. All right, I'm, I'm going to make that my statement for this uh, particular podcast. And um, to demonstrate it, I present to you um, Exhibit 1, Peter Boyer's album, Balance of Power. All right, <laughs> Peter Boyer was born in 1970 in Providence, Rhode Island, oh. where I lived briefly, I should say. Uh, this is the third recording of Boyer's um, music, as I said, in the Naxos American Classics series. It's the first to come to my attention. The works here were composed in response to a diverse group of commissions and circumstances. So they're all kind of occasional pieces, all right? meaning writ pieces written for a special occasion. Um, the first track is called Curtain Razor, and a lot of these works were written for a symphonic band. A symphonic band is an orchestra without violins, without strings. Okay, so it's just got winds, brass, and percussion. And um, this particular one was written in 2017 for um, the American Band of Providence to celebrate its 180th anniversary in 2017. That means they were playing during the Civil War in the wow. U.S., it's pretty amazing. Anyway, this is a version for orchestra um, arranged in 2020. That means it has strings in it. Okay, so he's added strings for this one. And the first thing you get, oh, man, turn it up. Dis disturb your neighbors. Unless you're American, they'll come over to your house and love it with you. Um, fantastic full orchestral sound on this album. This is, is a pretty enthusiastic work. It features a snare drum and it has a quick... This is a thing about American music, too. We have a lot of snare drums in our yep. music. It, it has a quick marching quality to it. In the first contrasting section at a minute and 30 seconds, there's a string melody. This is part of the new arrangement. There's another at three minutes and 30 seconds or so that builds to the boisterous ending. It's really uplifting. In its total optimism, uplifting spirit, this work just shouts America. <laughs> Or United yeah. States. Uh, you really can't imagine a composer from any other country coming up with something that sounds like this. Yeah. All right. Next, we get to the biggest um, composition on the uh, album. This is Balance of Power, uh, composed in 2019. Um, it was commissioned for the 90th anniversary season of the National Symphony Orchestra, and it was funded, this is interesting, by former U.S. Ambassador Bonnie McElveen Hunter, in honor of the 95th birthday of Henry Kissinger. How many how many works does he have? Uh, you know, dedicated to him. That's anyway, interesting. Boyer, yeah. Boyer admits he was dubious about accepting this commission, giving the um oh controversy surrounding Kissinger's career. But McElveen Hunter had the composer meet Kissinger, who requested that the work uh won not be too abstract so he could understand it. That's nice to know. He's uh, huh. admitting he's a simple man as far as music goes. And two, that it be a humorous symphony. Another interesting request hmm. from Mr. Kissinger. Uh, this work is not a biographical portrait or a political statement of any kind, says 
Boyer. You take that as you will. Um, instead, it tries to present three separate and contrasting movements that relate in different ways to Kissinger himself. Um, <laughs> Must be that pursuit in the third and second movement. <laughs> yes, it is. It's funny you pulled that out. <laughs> okay. um, Boyer prepared for the work by reading books on Kissinger, especially Kissinger's own Diplomacy and World Order, and came up with the three themes outlined in the work's three movements. Okay, movement one is called A Sense of History, and this takes its cue from Kissinger's profound understanding of history. I think we have to admit that he has that. Hmm. Um, how it has unfolded and the idea of a balance of power. This is his whole idea. Um, shimmering opening on strings and a harp for this. Uh, there's a melody by one of the lower brass instruments, which I think is a trombone, but I couldn't really tell. So I can tell in jazz, but it's so smooth and classical, I can't always tell. I have to see them. Uh, sensitive and wrapped with a warm bed of strings and harmonic support. Uh, the composer, Boyer, has a way... I hope I'm saying his name right, that it's not like Boyer, like Charles Boyer, but it's Peter... I'm, I'm going to say Boyer. Boyer's more American. So. <laughs> yeah, it is more American. Yeah, You never know, though. Boyer has a way of making all of his works immediately appealing uh, the percussion, when it comes in, booms out of the speakers. Uh, it's very presently recorded. In fact, this recording is full-bodied and very clean, with all instruments registering. Um, it's very bright. The whole his writing and the orchestral sound is all is always bright. I think this is a this is tr generally true of American com a lot of American composers. I think of Aaron Copland too. Uh, the movement features a bright marching section, then an episode suggesting something more ominous that breaks up at 5 minutes and 25 seconds, at which point the opening brass themes return. The second movement, as Kissinger um, uh, requested, is called A Sense of Humor, Scherzo Politico. And this was composed directly in response, as we said, to Kissinger's request. Um, Kissinger was renowned for his wit by those who knew him. I mean, we wouldn't know that. Um, the middle section's contrabassoon and bass clarinet duet is a tongue-in-cheek reference to Kissinger's famously low basso speaking voice. Mm. Um, Boyer thinks of this section as a brief musical negotiation. So you got to think okay. of... Uh, I can see that. Negotiation there, yeah. The rhythm at the beginning has a rather precarious rising and falling quality to it, as though the balance is shifting this way and then that. Sort of kind of reminded me of one of those funhouse floors that keeps tilting one way and then the next when you're in it. At the two-minute um, mark, the middle section begins, and it's really charming, especially because I love the two instruments involved. Um, the, uh, as we said, bass clarinet and contrabassoon. Uh, Boyer makes sure they stay in their honking lower ends, and even better for me. The opening section repeats once the negotiation is over. Third movement, A Sense of Direction. Uh, the title jumped out at Boyer from Kissinger's writings. The words suggest a propulsive quality, which Boyer invokes by repeated pulsating chords. I'm reading mm -hmm. from his notes here. Um, Boyer says the movement is much more upbeat than one might expect after reading Kissinger's writing, which is pretty sobering, actually. But Boyer says the phrase wanted him to end the piece in an optimistic manner. So he's going on the phrase, a sense of direction, more than what it actually evokes in Kissinger's writing here. Um, so it has pedal point basses at the beginning, supporting pulsating chords and colorful celebratory percussive instruments. The middle section with shimmering harp accompanying features bubbling wind lines and a gorgeous 
Celesta. We hear a marimba playing the syncopated chord being repeated. The opening material reforms and brings the entire piece to its luminous end. I'm sure Kissinger was happy with this. All right. Track five, Fanfare for Tomorrow. Uh, Written in 2021. This is the version for orchestra. Um, You might have heard this uh, only recently because it was written for President Biden's inauguration and was uh, premiered at that inauguration on January 20th, 2021. And it's originally for a band. You heard the band version. A lot of news stations pick this up. Um, it sounds like a movie opening to me with its ominous, quiet, but expansive opening. And yeah, I could imagine this being played on CNN. I mean, I didn't hear it at the time. Maybe some listeners have. There's something newsy about it. Perhaps the drums remind me of a typewriter rhythm. The rhythm speeds up a bit at the end for more momentum, but basically this sounds introductory to a bigger event. It's enjoyable and easy on the ear, as is all of the music on this album. But this one didn't really make an impression on me. It doesn't feel like it ever really gets going. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I guess it served the event that it was written for. Um, the next track, Rolling River, uh, sketches on Shenandoah, uh, composed in 2014. This was commissioned by the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra for the Cincinnati Pops. Um, and this is really beautiful, especially if you're American. It's one of those pieces that, you know, if you're American, this is going to go deeper into your soul than if you're from anywhere else, you know. It's uh, sweeping and cinematic. The famous theme is always front and center. Um, we hear the theme for the first time at the 26-second mark on an English horn with harp arpeggios backing it up. There's a lot of sugar in this, in this piece. Uh, and strings providing a harmonic bed. The harp arpeggios, that's, that's sugarcoating, basically. Boyer has a way with orchestral colors and big bone settings, and his variations of the orchestral surroundings in this piece are gorgeous. Okay, we're going to get a little down-tempo now. Track 7, Elegy, 2021. In 2018, Boyer was commissioned to compose and conduct incidental music for a play based on war letters, and the, the play was called If All the Sky Were Paper. The music underscored the actor's reading of war letters, primarily written by soldiers. Uh, It's simple and direct, and this work adapts some of the incidental music for that play into a single work. Um, The English horn again, I think, I think it's the English horn, opens the melodic material, which the warm and more diffuse strings then take over. There's a ticking rhythm being established by the harp, which then plays its arpeggiated chords solo, while the English horn continues with a new melody. Track 8, In the Cause of the Free, written in 2017. Commissioned as a reflection on Veterans Day and the signing of the armistice that ended the First World War. The title is taken from the poem For the Fallen by British poet Lawrence Binion, and the solo trumpet in the work plays a kind of soliloquy on the subject matter in a cadenza passage. This starts with light, military band-style drumming, uh, warm strings and mixture of winds and brass converse, Then the brass come up with more of a fanfare theme, which then dissolves in favor of a gradually crescendoing string theme. The trumpet solo begins at 3 minutes and 20 seconds and really continues to the poignant end of this piece. Track 9, Radiance, for String Orchestra, written in 2021. This one is the only piece on this album that was written without a commission. It was written specifically for this recording project because Boyer wanted to hear or explore the lyricism of the London Symphony Orchestra string section. Um, 
the work focuses on serenity and beauty, and it was written during the coronavirus pandemic, and it looked forward to a more optimistic time. Again, American optimism. There you go. Starts with a single sustained violin note played by massed violins. Cellos then play a theme around it. Uh, the warmth of the LSO is fantastic and is well captured on this spacious recording. Uh, the work does explore different textures possible with a string orchestra. Strings can do a lot more than this work does, but Boyer is content to stay with the warm and expansive. The interest is in the changing melodies and the overall feel of the orchestra. Just this big, warm body of sound. Uh, radiance indeed. I wish this work could be made into something I can pour from a jar into my bath water. I would <laughs> luxuriate in that bath for hours. Last work on the album is called Fanfare, Hymn, and Finale. Kind of uh, one of those three section kind of titles that evokes Cesar Franck to me. Um, this one is written in, in 2018 for a band and then the version for orchestra was arranged in 2020. This was commissioned by the president's own, uh, that's in quotation marks, United States Marine Band in celebration of its 220th anniversary in 2018. Okay, not as old as some uh, European institutions, but uh, <laughs> it's hmm. uh, really since the beginning of the country, you know, basically. The piece had to open with a celebratory fanfare, according to the... Um, the uh, commission, uh, but uh, Boyer wanted to include contrasting music, which might convey a sense of nobility, and thought that composing a hymn-like section could work well for this purpose. It's mixed-meter music of a jubilant, propulsive quality, ending the album. The title tells you all you need to know. It starts with a big fanfare, complete with propulsive percussion, very positive and expansion, like a John Williams movie score. The hymn comes floating in on the brass in the second minute and almost unnoticeably changes the feel of the piece. There's a really nice warm build in the fourth minute to the last section, which is triumphant. The work builds to a big, bright climax. How could it not? Anyway, in conclusion, classical music can be healing and also give us a sense of the of darkness that can heal us but this music is all big and mostly bright and sunny and if you need some optimism in your life just push play and apply this musical salve to your ears and heart guaranteed to lift your spirits if only for an hour or so even the more probing works really just hint at sorrow and can't help but be optimistic in the end i guess you can say boyer's compositions on this album are the embodiment of the American spirit as I knew it when I was younger. I do wonder what Boyer's music would sound like in chamber music form. Uh, it <laughs> seems from these works that his music requires the large forces all of these take on for its effect. I'll have to explore further, because I don't know much about this composer, really. Anyway, suffice it to say, his music is immediately appealing, but won't help you probe your deepest feelings. You'll have to go elsewhere for that. But <laughs> America's gift to the world is optimism, as I said earlier, and this music provides that. Uh, my conclusion, I wrote was this uh, positive, <laughs> unashamedly American yeah. sounding with endless melodies. Oh, yes. Intriguing orchestrations with tons of brass and percussion, uh, which I always mm. like. Uh, big fanfares yeah. are balanced out with pastoral themes and lots of lush woodwind timbres. I really liked uh, his orchestral arranging of these string compositions too, which usually I find yeah. boring, but I found them rich and full-bodied 
like Vaughn Williams, who I think oh, you wow. know, is my favorite kind of. He's my favorite string pull orchestra. All composer the different too. colors yeah. out of the strings. I'd like to hear more of what uh, he could do yeah. here. And then, you know, you get to hear all of this really, really well from the great Naxos recording uh, here. Mm. So, uh, tip of the hat to Naxos. I just said it's uh, real ear candy. Yeah. Yeah. Big recording, and yeah, real ear candy. Yeah. Exactly. Wonderful. For listeners who aren't familiar with Vaughn Williams' string works, the most famous one is the Fantasia on a theme of Thomas Tallis. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a magical work. Make sure you hear that. Okay? Ralph Vaughn Williams. Or some people say Rafe Vaughn Williams. All right. In the jazz uh, department, we're going to stay all American uh, this week, too. We need an American title, then. We've got to yeah, come up do. with an American title. We need an American title. Uh, we're going to go... Uh, something completely new and then we're going to see some old friends uh in different combinations again oh yeah uh, this evening uh we're going to start out though with uh something new uh album came out at the end of last month by carlos jimenez woods uh and i was just checking the new releases and i heard this uh, i saw this come up and i said oh flute i want to check it out i was in a flute mood and yeah i liked what i heard and uh, so so let's get this into an episode, and I thought it would fit in here kind of nicely. Uh, this is on, I believe, his own produced label, uh, C.J. Martinet Music Company. And Jimenez himself is a flute player I, and vocalist as well. And here he's composed uh, all the music on this uh, recording. And uh, he's led ensembles of jazz, uh, Latin jazz, and salsa music. He's mm. born, Michael, in Yonkers. Yeah. New York. But he moved to uh, Puerto Rico when he was uh, six years old and began his musical training there. Uh, from a young age, he had an aptitude for percussion. This says his uh, biography, which he sent to me because I requested information on the musicians on this recording. And uh, thanks, Carlos, for sending that to me. And I guess he played timbales, bongos, and congas to start out. And then he also played trumpet. That was his first uh, lyrical instrument. And then he soon changed to flute. And he was inspired by the music of Mango Santa Maria. Hard not to be inspired by that. That's some good music. Uh, yeah. And the way he used the flute in his arrangements. And uh, he performed with his school's big band uh, throughout the island. He got passion for the flute and returned to New York as a young adult and he uh, pursued his dream of becoming a jazz flutist and he studied at the Music Conservatory of Westchester and then went on to uh, expand into jazz and he's got eight albums of his own compositions uh, done so far as well as arrangements of jazz and Latin music. And so here's his new one, uh, Woods, which uh, features you know, him and his own flute but he's also the composer, arranger, and producer here. And he's got as sidemen Hector Martignon on piano, Ruben Rodriguez on bass, and Vince Cherico on drums. I think some of these guys have played uh, with uh, Ray Barreto, uh, hmm. a big name in Latin music. So uh, well, let's jump into it here. The first tune, as I said, all of these are composed by Jimenez. Uh, You're the Best Pops. It's an upbeat swinging tune. The rhythm section uh, gives an eight-bar intro with uh, chiming open-voiced chords from Martignon on piano. Uh, Jimenez comes in with the melody and the piano accent notes uh, along with him. Uh, the flute has little trails of diverting notes on the ends of phrases. Uh, Jimenez adds in some fluttering and 
trills for Spice and then launches on a solo over the walking bass of Rodriguez and driving cymbals of Cherico. I like how he builds ideas of shorter phrases and then adds in some chromatic ideas uh, ending in a low trill. Martignon follows with a piano solo. Swinging hard but leaving space between his phrases and accenting big chords, flute, piano, and drums trade off some solo phrases before joining in on a final strain of the melody to finish it off. Track two is Wheelbarrow Blues. It's a slow swinging blues. The rhythm section gives a four-bar intro and Jimenez brings in the minor blues melody. It's a 12-bar blues form but not with standard blues changes. Uh, the rhythmic syncopated phrases in the 7th and 8th bars are cool, as is the way Jimenez lets the pitch uh, fall away on the last note of the melody. They go around twice, then Martignon is up for a solo first. He plays relaxedly, but he pushes with some outside harmonic ideas, getting more accented and percussive the next time around. Jimenez mixes up his phrasing with some legato lines before getting more bluesy, and he continues on with some nice phrases showing his agility, but keeping a relaxed feel. He ties it back in a couple times around the melody uh, with a nice flute flourish and fall at the end. Track three, Eyes Over Dawn. It's a breezy 6-8 feel marked out in the light brushwork from Cherico and nice rhythmic pulsing from Rodriguez's bass. It's a pretty melody line for Jimenez's flute and uplifting chord changes. A Martignon harmonizes and doubles some parts of the flowing melody line. And Jimenez solos first. The 6-8 feel lends itself uh, to making short floating phrases and the flute gives me an image of a butterfly changing directions on a breeze, mm. that kind of light movement. Uh, Martignon solos next. Uh, adding in more runs this time, uh, but always with a tight rhythmic feel and clear articulation. Rodriguez gets a bass solo next. He has a very soft attack to his sound, uh, focusing on melodic phrases, and they bring it back to the melody for another round. Fourth track is Dreams of Brazil. On this one, Rodriguez lays down some funky slapping bass for the intro here. Uh, mm. The piano and drums join in with a tight groove. Jimenez joins in on top with a melody line. The next section changes up the groove to a pulsing samba for a cool contrast. Uh, after a return to the funky groove, there's another cool rhythmic change with some cowbell and rhythmic piano chords, and then an easier samba feel after that. So this sort of going through a collection of different Brazilian feels here. Uh, Rodriguez brings back the funky stuff for the start of a percussive piano solo from Martignon. He locks in his lines over the changing drum and bass grooves below, showing off some speedy runs and chiming high register notes. Jimenez follows, starting funky and then flowing over the samba feel, working into some high register rhythmic phrases and finally some more legato lines at the end. They go around the melody once more to finish it out with a cool final chord for some final flute fun. Uh, it's an exciting tune, exploring these different uh, Brazilian grooves. The fifth track's the title track, Woods. This one has a medium tempo heavy rock beat and a contrasting bright melody of long tones in Jimenez's flute. There's some interesting interval jumps uh, in that melody line. Uh, Jimenez solos first mixing up more legato ideas and figures that lock into the tight drum groove. Martignon solos uh, next with a Rhodes type sound here. I don't know if it's an actual Rhodes or not, uh, but he plays some cool accented rhythm, rhythmic figures along with uh, running lines that bring out the charm of that Rhodes sound. And uh, once more around that melody to finish this one up. 
Uh, track six, Snuggle and Cuddle. <laughs> nice title. Uh, <laughs> slow and bluesy. I like it. With some piano uh, bluesy tinkling in the intro to get things started. Uh, Jimenez plays uh, the drowsy melody line and Martignon adds some ornaments around it. Uh, next, there's a piano section with some unexpected harmonic developments, uh, but it ties back to a bluesy ending of that for kind of, a, I think it's a 24-bar form, uh, all in all. Martignon gets a bluesy exposition with intensity and cool rolling figures, uh, pushes through with some interesting harmonic ideas uh, in his solo. Uh, Jimenez is next with a shorter solo, passing it off to Rodriguez for some bluesy bass work over the contrasting harmonic passage section, and then finishing off with some fluttering flute improvisations before tying it back to another round of the melody and a final bluesy finish. Track seven, Not That Far Away. Uh, some wind and water sounds here, uh, open for a rubato piano and flute theme. It's pretty, uplifting through the rising chords. Very nice phrasing from Jimenez. Just after a minute, drums and bass join in with a slow groove with well-placed clicks from Cherico. Nice spaces in the melody phrases, too. Martignon is up for a piano solo next. He focuses on clear articulation, letting notes uh, ring and playing some descending interval pattern ideas. Jimenez solos next with a delicate breath and some pretty trills, and Rodriguez follows with his soft attack sound back, working melodic ideas into the upper register. Uh, we hear the pretty melody again, and then the sounds of nature once more. Track eight, Bamboo Path. It's a samba tune uh, with a great driving bass pulse and tight drum brushwork. Uh, the melody is happy and breezy, but there's a tension building contrasting section where the bass and harmonies change up. Jimenez pushes the tension too with trills on top before it returns to the driving samba beat for a flute solo. Here Jimenez shows off nice articulation and harmonic ideas uh, in his solo. Martignon's next on piano with a rhythmic and well-articulated solo. They work back around the melody again and Jimenez get some time uh, to jam out over repeats of the contrasting section uh, from the tune part with a trilly close. And track nine, Smoketacular. An eight bar drum intro gets this one going. Everyone is in and then Jimenez gets a modal minor riff melody with similar phrases, one rising and one falling at the end of it. On the repeat, bass and drums drop out, leaving the flute over the drums for a cool contrasting effect. Uh, Martignon gets a 16-bar piano solo, and then Rodriguez gets some bass time, mixing up walking uh, with other bass patterns uh, and some interplay from Martignon and Phils from Cherico. They get some uh, modal play off from one another. Uh, Martignon adds a little Rhodes into the mix, along with the acoustic piano, uh, maybe one hand on each, working unison lines for a really unique solo. Eventually, the right hand goes off for its own solo uh, in the right channel, and he keeps the chords going on the acoustic in the left hand. Uh, then they join in unison again. Things simmer down a bit for Jimenez to come uh, in on a flute solo. Uh, he has fun snaking through the harmonies with some chromatic phrases as well. Cherico is really whipping up a storm on the drums underneath. Uh, the groove loosens and flows into swing as they go along. Uh, Jimenez finishes up around nine minutes, leaving piano and bass to have some rhythmic play over Cherico's drum fills. Then Jimenez joins back in to help end it with some trills on a repeated riff, uh, a fun and spontaneous sounding track. Hmm. Great title, too. Yeah. Smoke-tacular. Smoke-tacular. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. 
And uh, we're going to end up with uh, track 10, Outside in the Rain. This one starts with a driving samba beat in the drums and bass with punctuated rhythmic uh, chords from Martignon. Jimenez adds a rather legato melody line uh, that builds tension at the end of the phrase, the rising syncopated line, and high trill. Martignon doubles up with flute nicely on the repeats of phrases. Uh, Jimenez gets an animated and fluttery high-energy solo next. Uh, the beat comes to a halt for a little piano breakdown and reset to a samba groove for a piano solo. And Martignon plays a lot of spring-loaded fast lines over the pulsing samba groove. Uh, it breaks down for some more dramatic piano chords and chimes at the end of the piano solo and resets the groove for another run through the melody. So, it's an energetic and uplifting recording. Lots of different feels here. You get pulsing samba, some hard driving swing, blues, and some nice slower ballads as well. Jimenez's compositions have good melodies and some creative structures and arrangements. The rhythm section locks in well together with tight grooves. Martignon's solos are energetic. Uh, I like how Rodriguez uses a variety of different bass sounds to match the atmosphere of each tune. And Cherico goes from light brushing to hard driving, uh, depending on what they need for the tune. Most importantly, Jimenez's flute shines high and clear with great tone, impressive technique, and well-constructed solos with lots of exciting flourishes of trills and flutters. Uh, just what you want to hear from the flute. Uh, really nice, exciting jazz with lots of different feels here. Yeah, you know, I heard this one on the same day that I heard the... Um the Paul Boyer album. So it's almost too much happiness for mm. me, you know, in one day. Uh, this is a really, it was a joy from beginning to end for me too. Um, I'm already a big fan of jazz flute. So to have like the flute as the solo, really the leader of the entire album really was a real pleasure for me. In fact, I, I ordered this one right away. This was, if you want a CD of this, it's on uh, CD baby and you can get it on amazon.com, but somehow not the other Amazons. So you can look there. Mm. Um, yeah, this was great. There's enough variety of instrumentation and rhythm to maintain interest if you don't like the flute so much, including always welcome Latin rhythms that put a lot of energy into the music. Yeah, spirit lifting, really great. I, I like this a lot. Yeah, I'm going to go uh, check out some of his other recordings and uh, yeah. hopefully we'll hear more in the future. And thanks for sending the information again, Carlos. Now, he, he sent it to you personally? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. No, it's usually some... Somebody in an office has that. No, no, <laughs> the, no. the record label. He does his own stuff. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I oh, wow. wanted to give credit to all the musicians. So, yes, yeah, so we uh, always do. Yeah. All right, now we're going to uh, revisit some uh, names we've had on the podcast before, so <laughs> some more than others. Um, yeah. But uh, here we've got flute, and uh, going to go to uh, trombone next with uh, the latest release from. Michael Deese. This just came out, uh, let's see, in July. Uh, best Next Thing on Positone Records, as uh, both of this and the next release will be. Uh, Michael Deese, this I guess is his ninth album for Positone, and he's a really impressive trombonist, really great chops and uh, exciting solos. And uh, here, uh, let's see, this is the maybe third time? Hmm. We've had him on the podcast. Uh, going back to episode seven, uh, we've got, uh, let's see, Give It All You Got. I think that was his last album last year. So right at the start of the podcast, we uh, did that one. And then uh, we heard him again with uh, the trumpeter Farnell Newton. 
uh, back in episode 44 with Feel the Love, uh, both of those releases on Positon. And here he's got all the heavy hitters lined up uh, with a, <laughs> a really interesting uh, combination in the horns here. So Dees on trombone. We've got uh, Alex Sipiagen on trumpet, who we've heard a number of times. And uh, some of... I, I haven't heard uh, in this combination, but uh, makes it all the more exciting. Rudresh Mahanthapa on alto sax. Yeah. Always you can always tell when he's playing. Yeah, you can. <laughs> now, we would expect yeah. um, with uh, Boris Kozlov on bass and Rudy Royston on drums. Uh, Boris Kozlov, who's been on the podcast <laughs> recordings more than any other person. Yeah, I think he this is like our, 17 yeah. now. Um, right. He just seems to be recording something almost every day. Uh, but we often hear uh, Royston Kozlov with uh, Art Hirahara, hmm. but we don't hear, and we're going to hear Art uh, and these guys later. We've got uh, Renee Rosnes on piano, who is uh, Bill Charlotte's wife. By the oh, way. wow. Yeah. I wonder if they have their a piano own playing family huh. separate pianos or something. I wonder how that works. Do, do they take turns practicing? You know, I don't, I don't know. know. You wonder. They yeah. they must have a big house. Anyway, um, so we've got this real powerhouse combination of uh, players here. And i got to tell you, this is a re one exciting recording. Uh, we'll get you uh, pumping. Yeah, it was. Uh, largely due to the arrangements and great compositions uh, that are a nice combination of uh, Deesa's own and some interesting contributions from other people. And we're going to start out with one by the great trombonist uh, Steve Touré, who's got an album coming out next month that we'll definitely okay. uh, talk about because all of his uh, recordings are exciting and I've been waiting for something for him for a while. This one's called Rainbow People. Starts out with a light drum pickup on toms into a minor modal Latin groove with cool repeating bass figure in the, in the bottom there uh, and also in the left hand of the piano. Dies spreads a legato melody on top with a clear longing tone. Uh, on the repeat of the phrase, Mahanthapa joins in on alto to harmonize. There's a contrasting B section where the Latin groove breaks up into more unison syncopated phrases of the melody. Overall, it's an AABA form. Dies blasts out first with a solo, mixed articulations, a high falling note, and some lip trickery into more smooth lines exploring the chord changes with intervals. His phrasing is buttery smooth and leaves just the right amount of space. Mahanthapa joins in for some backing and then is off on his own solo, he rises up into some fast fingering of figures, forcing some harmonic tension, gets outside of the chords with high register ideas and a smoldering tone. Uh, Rosnes solos next, starting with chiming tones and then modal runs, showing a nice sense of flow. She works into some cool two-handed rhythmic figures and then gets more percussive. Royston, adding great drum fills underneath. The horns come back in on the B section and continue on with the end of the melody and then some trading between Dees and Mahanthapa uh, and a final vamp out on the opening riff to the end. Uh, nice start for the album. Yeah, you, you can always tell Mahanthapa is like solo because he's really fast and sort of yeah. very busy. He really likes, it's almost it's almost like all of his musical knowledge is going into every solo. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like in some kind of being compressed into like every line he plays. Having a couple of double espressos before all of his solos <laughs> just to get, get up for that yeah there, there's going to be a track at the very end of this album that he starts the soloing on and mm. they all kind of follow him sort of in his style we'll get to yeah. when we get to it I'll, I'll mention <laughs> it but i'm sure you will too uh, track two uh Deese original parker's mood this one starts with rising agitated horn phrases over drums uh, in an intro uh, it goes into a swinging boppy upbeat melody 
Uh, Sipiogen joins in on trumpet on this tune, uh, making for a fun horn arrangement. Uh, Sipiogen himself is up first for a solo, impressing with double time lines and then easier swinging phrases. Aman Thapa is next, working up some harmonic tension and speedy phrases. Uh, Dies next swings his solo with ease, also getting some double time phrases with quick slide work. Uh, Rosnes has rhythmic fun to start out her solo and then some tumbling fun phrases. The horns come back with uh, a nice fun arranged lines and some solo breaks for Royston to show off some tight drumming, then another round of the melody with a nice descending end line. Next we've got a Rene Rosnes tune, Tikalik. A unison horn line over bass starts this out, and then it splits into different parts and harmonization. The piano and bass join in underneath for some syncopated counter lines. Royston adds some nice cymbal swinging here. It kicks into a full medium swing with a solo for Dees. He keeps it mostly swinging in the warm middle register with some acrobatic slide work. Uh, Rosnes solos next, tinkling out nice uh, rhythmic high note ideas and a run up high and then back down low. Uh, Sipiogen follows. Uh, sounds like he's on flugelhorn here. Uplifting ideas, some fluttery phrases, and then into the high register before a final ending phrase of agility. And the horns come back together uh, for the melody arrangement to finish it out. Now we've got uh, track four, a real fun arrangement of Sonny Rollins' Doxy. <laughs> the horn arrangement's really cool. Sipiogen takes charge at the start. Uh, Saxon trombone answer him. Then Deist takes turns on the melody with kind of puckish phrases, uh, smearing playfully into tight staccato hits. Uh, the horns do, uh, trading off more phrases. Uh, Manthap is up first for a manic solo of harmonic exploration. Deist is next, getting jiggly and having fun with some lip calisthenics. And Sipiogen is sassy with some half-valve work, screams, and a bluesy finish. The horns all join in together for some improvised mayhem until it breaks uh, into the melody again, and the playful arrangement continues to the end. The horns doing their best wild beast calls on the final notes, uh, all in good fun. <laughs> Another Dees tune, track five, uh, Charlie J. A uh, cymbal roll brings Dees in on the longing ballad melody. Rosnes adds nice piano figures underneath uh, while Royston brushes delicately. Kozlov keeps a tight pulse on the bass. Dies goes uh, on into a solo. The rhythm section keeps it sparse for him to fill with his melodic ideas. Rosnes has a delicate solo next with some rapid high register figures and then clear springy phrases and rich chords. Uh, Dies comes back in with a legato melody line. Kozlov gets some time to have uh, some woody fun underneath that. He shows some real fast fingering cool swelling low string kind of uh, tones uh, in there. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets rubato for Dees to make a fluffy ending while Rosnes adds a sprinkle of pretty piano figures uh, at the end. Track 6, a Rufus Reed tune, uh, Glory. A syncopated staccato notes repeated from the horns make an intro. Trombone, bass, and piano take the start of the nervous syncopated rhythm in unison. Sipiogen joins in on the next round. It opens up into a driving medium swing with Sipiogen taking the first solo, uh, searing with his tone, uh, adding in some trills. Rosnes is next with some rocking and swinging chords and phrases, surprising with a final idea that starts way down low and works up into the next solo by Dees. Uh, he swings hard, focusing on rhythmic ideas. Kozlov is next, making, mixing up lots of different rhythmic ideas in his melodies. Uh, you can tell Royston is listening very carefully and adapting to everything he plays. Uh, they take it through the melody once more to finish it up. 
Track seven, a tune uh, for Michael Deese, I guess one for Deese. It's by Claudio Roditi, the great uh, Brazilian trumpet player who uh, I had a chance to meet back in the 90s uh, Hmm. when he was uh, upstate New York. Uh, So it's a good memory for me. Uh, This one has a swinging melody, uh, first with a harmonized horn section strain, uh, then a solo trombone interlude, another horn section strain and finally a strain where trombone trades off with the trumpet and sax makes a nice contrasting flow Deese is up first for a swinging solo with some double time licks cool triplets and a lot of flexibility Sipiogen follows on trumpet with a well structured solo and Rosnes chaining together rising and falling phrases nicely Deese returns with the melody and then the horn arrangement uh, comes back together for the end and we've got a tune uh, by trumpeter Charles Tolliver with love uh, Royston plays a pickup into an even beat Latin groove, the chimey piano intro from Rosnes, and a heartbeat pulse from Kozlov. Mahantapa starts the melody himself, and Dees uh, and then Sipiogen come in in layers and provide harmony and counterlines the next time around. There's a middle contrasting section with more horn arrangement before the first section repeats. Dees solos first, laying out some gentle phrases to begin and then having some fun with a low repeated note that he comes back to some more after showing some more agile phrases. He really builds up this one nicely. Uh, Man Thapa comes in with flutters from another harmonic planet and trades eight-bar phrases with some smooth lines from Sipiogen on flugelhorn here, I think. Uh, Rosnes gets the spotlight then showing off some chiming chords and little figures that build up before all the horns come in again together, this time to work through the melody uh, once more. There's a fun section of fast staccato chords in the piano uh, and bass for Royston to work around the drum kit over before the horns add the last word. Uh, now you're going to get a fun tune, uh, another Dees original horse trading. Dees plays uh, bluesy descending licks exchanged with stop time rhythm section figures at a very, very fast tempo. Uh, right. It's a 24-bar form with an unexpected chord from bar 21 uh, on. <laughs> Mantapa joins him next time around uh, the melody form, uh, and he also solos first here, uh, whipping and he through. Sets the tone. Uh, this, yeah. <laughs> he whips <laughs> through rhythmic licks and this kind of otherworldly set of harmonic ideas. Uh, right. It's an artful strangulation of the alto here with some angsty sounds. Uh, Dees yeah, follows as is his way, <laughs> yeah, and he needs all the lube he can get on the trombone slide to play at this racing tempo, which he fast, does, which yes, is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he is up for it uh, with yeah. chops and flexibility. I like how he gets way down low uh, just before the end. Rosnes is next with some speedy piano lines and finishing it in some rising, ominously dense chords. And then Royston gets the spot, uh, showing off his great finesse on the kit. Uh, he keeps the hi hat going all the time while working around the rest of the kit in a really tight fashion. Once more around the melody from the horns and it closes it out. Uh, it was a really killer, killer speed. And uh, Mahantapa just, <laughs> what do you sell those first? What do you play after that? <laughs> yeah, this, this is the standout track on the album for me. It really was astonishing. Yeah. I was like, wow. <laughs> and uh, maybe you can't really top that in terms of intensities. And uh, Deese doesn't, he ends it up with a ballad here another one of his originals, Lullaby for Rita. And this is a pretty 6-8 ballad with a lush horn arrangement intro. Dees gets the melody, showing off his more lyrical side uh, with that kind of lonely cry tone. Only a trombone can do that, you know, that sort of mm. 
stranger walking in the rain kind of feeling that it yeah. evokes to me you know uh, there's a nice little pitch bend in there too and a sassy drop from way up high uh, so he keeps it from getting too sweet yeah with uh, those little touches uh, the horns return to harmonize the next section before it goes back to Dees for a more animated solo that he builds up nicely with modulating descending lines uh, at the end Rosnitz gets a tasty trickly and trilly solo and finally, Kozlov has his own spot with a long melodic solo, uh, including a neat little bendy slide and some interesting articulation variety. Uh, the horn arrangement ushers Dies back in for a final lyrical melody statement and more horns to some pretty final piano tones from Rosnes and a diddling little bass note from Kozlov. Uh, so, uh, it's another exciting release from Dies. Uh, he's got the top positone side men and lady here. Uh, hmm. Nice collection of his own original tunes and these other originals from Rosnitz herself, uh, Roditi, Tolliver, Rufus Reed, and even a Sonny Rollins tune with a nice arrangement. Dies always amazes with his huge tone and agility and overall that technique, uh, really creative solos. Uh, Sipiagin's powerful trumpet always packs a punch, and then Mahantapa's cosmic alto play is always a blast uh, thrown in yeah. there. It's like a, a little turbo boost. Rosnes is great uh, accompaniments with tasty solos too, and underneath it all, you have that Royston Kozlov and their rhythmic mind melt. A super energized recording, uh, lots of fun. Yeah, lots of fun is a good word for it. I don't think of him as cosmic jazz, but I mean, he could easily go in that direction. He's got those those ideas, you know. Um, the thing that made this in, this album really interesting to me is just all of these all of these um, soloists have widely contrasting styles, and yet mm. you know, so they're all kind of fitting into this um, this ensemble. It was kind of interesting to hear how that went, you know, like. Yeah. You know, you'd pick up like a solo that's some, from somebody else, and where do you take it? You know, and a lot, a lot of times that was really interesting because the the styles were so different. What you know, especially when Mahanthapa took over, <laughs> he usually would yeah. take things into an odd place. Very different personalities, uh, but yeah, uh, the arrangements are great though with the horns uh, yeah. because they all lock in really nicely. Yeah, one of the reasons I like this too is because I've become so familiar with these musicians just because of this podcast. You know, right? <laughs> <laughs> know, we know them all now. You know. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was it was really fun, and especially uh, horse trading was for me the standout track. So I would say go yeah. right to that one; it's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. it's really it's really cool to hear uh, you know trombone be able to keep up with anything. You know, these fast <laughs> tempos. I couldn't believe stuff, he yeah. followed like you know Mahantapa's <laughs> yeah. uh, breakneck speed. Like any yeah. and yeah, he really kept up. It was really amazing. Yeah, wow. really good. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, always happy to hear more Michael Deese, and I'm glad he's on uh, Positone because they put out a lot of really good jazz, and they sell it at reasonable prices, too. Uh, yeah, I have a few Positone releases yeah. this year, actually, already. Yeah. Yeah. And one more Positone, another one of our repeat musicians here, and one of our favorite as well, and that's the great uh, pianist Art Hirahara with his new Positone release, Verdant Valley. This came out uh, July 20th. Uh, we've heard Art Hirohara several times on the podcast. Go back to episode 14, where we wow. talked about Alex Sipiagin's Upstream, which he was a side man on. And then his uh, previous release, Open Sky, which we really loved a lot on episode 23, and also made our best of 2021 list. Right. Yeah. yeah. I have that one, too. I yeah, bought that really one. nice. Yeah. And uh, most recently, we heard him as a sideman, also on Positone, for Diego Rivera's uh, Mestizo, oh, recording yeah. episode 52. 
Um, so, and I've always said, well, I wonder when his next solo album is going to be out. And uh, it's out this year. And uh, so it's out now, in fact. Yeah. And uh, you should listen <laughs> to it because uh, this is really great. It's the kind of recording, it takes a few listens to get through. I listened to it sort of casually twice. And then uh, I sat down to really like take a deep listen and more things jumped out at me. Mm. Uh, so we've got Art Hirahara on piano and organ on one track too, which we haven't heard before. Donnie McCaslin on tenor sax on most uh, of the tracks he plays on, and also alto flute on the last track. And the uh, great combo that we just talked about uh, here, Boris Kozlov on bass, Rudy Roystrand drums. Again, man, he's really racking up the uh, album choices for us here on this podcast. We'll have to make him a co-host. Yeah, I'd love to talk. I'd love to hear something from Boris Kozlov. That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, Mark Free, producer, and uh, Nick O'Toole, engineer. This was recorded back in June 2021 at Acoustic Recording Brooklyn. Uh, so we're going to start out with uh, all these are um, Hirohara's original tunes, by the way. First one, Zero Hour. This one begins with a rhythmic repeated piano note starts and a sax melody enters and works around it uh, interestingly uh, Royston adds some simple textures and then Hirahara adds some right hand chords Kozlov bows sustained bass notes as the uh, sax drops out coming again with some uh, backing at about one minute Hirahara makes uh, delicate right hand melodies with clear articulation that uh, build up in intensity. Kozlov has added more pulsing bass and Royston is getting a groove going to match Hirohara's blooming sound of percussive chords. The sax rejoins for a transition section that changes the meter to a 7-4 with repeated riffs uh, that builds into a sax solo, keeping the new meter. Um, McCaslin plays relaxedly and rhythmically in his phrases getting tension with harmonies. He pushes it with double-time phrases, high-register notes as he goes along. Royston is doing some intense and creative drumming to push it along. The sax solo ends around five and a half minutes, and then Hirahara plays out evenly spaced chords uh, as things quiet down to set the stage for a bowed bass solo from Kozlov. He starts out warm, but gets some high kind of whale cry tones, and then some tapping tones with the boa as well, as McCaslin adds some more soft thoughts on the sax. It's an interesting composition uh, with a surprising change of meter midway through. Track two, the title track, uh, Verdant Valley. This is a gently rocking kind of piano lullaby-like figure uh, that makes an intro into a bowed bass melody from Kozlov. Uh, it ebbs and flows along freely with Royston adding simple flourishes and hits. Uh, it's a short composed piece of just about three minutes, but very pretty. Track three, The Shadowist, a sax melody line and a shadowing piano counterpoint of single right hand notes start this one in lockstep. It's sparse and interesting. Bass and drums join in solidifying the 6-8 feel next time around as Hirohara adds some more ornaments to the lines. Bass and drums drop out as McCaslin and Hirohara work improvised ideas together. McCaslin next gets a, a uh, sax solo as Royston and Kozlov return. He blows slinky lines through the chord changes with an edge of intensity. Hirohara gets a solo next with creative triplet ideas, dazzling runs underneath Kozlov and Royston are swinging really hard. McCaslin adds 
backing phrases as well. After the piano solo, it comes down to just sax and piano moving through the melody before bass and drums rejoin, adding some push, slowing briefly to a false ending, and then a final phrase. Track four, Truth Called Love. Now, this is a solo piano piece with a lush intro and a yearning melody. Hirohara adds a more rhythmic waltzing push with the left hand, uh, building more intensity as he goes with pretty melodic improvisations and uh, nice use of dynamics. The meter seems to shift into 4-4 in spots, but then it settles down into a lovely ending with gentle chiming chords and rich harmonies. Track 5, Symbiosis. Uh, Royston signals this one in with some tight hi-hat, but Kaslan adds sultry sax lines over Hirohara's rich chords. It's a free-flowing Hirohara adds rhythmic figures in there. After about a minute, it's flowing along uh, with long sax melody notes. Hirohara takes over for a solo. It builds from more free-flowing to a super groove from Royston and Kozlov, feeding Hirohara's sparkling high register figures and chiming chords. McCausland gets a solo next with interesting rhythmic figures and high register intense blowing. Settles down after four minutes or so with rhythmic piano chimed figures and answering sax phrases, working into a new section of sax and piano uh, going together and then more sax free blowing. They join back together on the riff to take it to the end with some final sax doodling from McCausland. It's a very high energy number. Track six, Sphere of the Muses. So a re- <laughs> Repeating even chime chords from Hirohara, it's six beats of one chord and then two of another. Uh, Royston adds cymbals and Kozlov adds nice bass textures underneath. At 30 seconds, uh, Hirohara changes uh, to a melody line with an organ backing. The feel is 3-3-2, uh, three, three, the grouping of the, the notes, right? So it's slow and sparse. Uh, Hirohara builds it up with intensity as the organ swells, exploring modally, and then bluesy ideas uh, getting more percussive. It's very intense. There's some surprising harmonic twists and a big modulation on the way. Uh, he keeps playing on, climaxing in fast, repeated chord figures as Royston fills below. It returns to the soft opening chiming figures, which slow into different a different piano ending, rising up through some dissonances to a final soft high tinkling of the keys it's even got like a, a compositional sort of a shape to it it's like an arch yeah you know it does a fade mm-hmm. at the end it sort of reaches this high point in the middle and just kind of comes yeah. down very interesting and pretty interesting yeah yeah atmospheric uh then oh we were talking about this last episode <laughs> yeah, escher uh, right escher yeah. so we've got the uh, escherian steps royston provides an intro for this one and McCaslin is right in on tenor with the melody that consists of similar phrases that rise with the climbing harmonies underneath. Uh, Royston and Kozlov are driving a super fast swing beat here. The next section has a kind of halftime feel, but the rising harmony idea continues in Hirohara's chords and the sax line. That must be the steps idea. Mm. Um, they go up and around, uh, you know, kind of like a giant steps kind of thing. Uh, the first section is 16 bars, but the next is 12, which makes mm. an odd tune length of 28 bars. They go around the structure once more. Things quiet down immediately for Hirohara's solo, but the driving pace continues in the piano lines and figures and Royston's cymbals. 
Kozlov works back into his super fast bass walking, uh, going from simpler figures before that. Uh, Hirahara is really on fire here. Rapid lines and then percussive chords. McCaslin is next, uh, starting with choppy two-note figures and then more connected lines, still uh, stopping with interesting standout notes in his phrases. Uh, and then Hirahara and Kozlov drop out to give him more harmonic freedom over Royston's boisterous drumming. Hirahara and Kozlov come back for some chord hits uh, and build-ups for Royston to keep on after the sax uh, and get it all out. Uh, they take it around the melody once more for a big finish. Track 8, Lost, a piano intro of descending chords with charming dissonances. Uh, after a short pause, Kozlov and Royston join in uh, and set a lightly swinging 5-4 meter for Hirahara to play the melody over. It's gentle with lots of chords and rhythmic figures. Uh, Hirahara gets more lyrical uh, with a flowing solo. At about a minute and 40 seconds or so, it gets a little more forward drive from Kozlov's beat and kind of weighty bass walk there. Uh, but then it mixes up again in parts. Hirahara's lines are really liquid here. He gets more chord ideas later with ringing chimes. And then he brings it down with simple chords for Royston to do some decoration on the toms. And then makes a final build up into a lush run and some final pretty tones. Track 9, Danza por Art. Shifting rubato held chords, swirling sax lines and cymbals start this one out. Kozlov has some low bowing underneath here. Uh, there's a little pause before Royston sets a light beat and McCaslin blows the legato syncopated melody, which has cool answer lines in the bass and piano left hand. Uh, the next section is more syncopated, with sax and piano locking in together on rhythmic figures. Listen to Kozlov's funky rising bass lines under here. <laughs> it's really cool. Hmm. There's a break for McCaslin to start a solo. He starts kind of lazily scooping down low. Uh, he makes it sassier with phrases and well-spaced little gaps and uh, milking a cool riff uh, that he uh, gets a hold of before uh, getting more animated with runs. Uh, there's another break for Hirahara solo. Uh, this is another one that shows off his variety of articulations and keen touch. He gets into some interesting rhythmic percussive chords and then continues building it to a climax with lots of uh, ringing out chords. Uh, I like the hint of Maiden Voyage that he <laughs> throws in there too. <laughs> you might recognize that as he goes along in the chords. Royston gets a tasty tom break before McCaslin joins back in for another round of the melody. Then Kozlov keeps the bass groove going and Royston has some time to work it up on the drums. Piano and sax join back in on the syncopated line from the melody to bring it to a close. Track 10, Ships Passing. Piano pickup chords into a lush and slow ballad for Hirohara. It's a pretty original melody here. Royston stays delicate and sparse on the brushes, and Kozlov gives a pulse, locking in with Hirohara's chords. It takes a breath before Hirohara starts his solo. There's lots of space at this tempo, and his lines flow and trickle beautifully. Kozlov gets a bass solo after that. He has some high melody lines that really sing out of the mm -hmm. bass. Uh, also some cool double-stopped rhythmic figures later on. Hirahara comes back in with washes of notes and some rolling figures before going around the melody ending with some alternating low chords and high chimes. Uh, Kozlov somehow quickly getting his bow out for some low sustain after plucking uh, on the very end. So you'll hear a pluck note and then suddenly he's got that bow going. Uh, it's a gorgeous tune. 
And we're going to end with I Used to Love Her, uh, which begins with an intro of a cycle of open-sounding syncopated chords over a light, even beat from Royston. McCausland comes in with the melody on alto flute with a rich tone. Uh, it floats along nicely with some harmonic twists. The final section has a great undulating bass line from uh, Kozlov fitting in with uh, Hirohara's left-hand figures. Hirohara solos first, light and rhythmically, uh, but gaining steam with push from Royston and Kozlov's swelling groove. McCausland comes back with more flute melody and then improvisations, including some chromatic tensions over the undulating bass lines. Uh, he continues on to the end with a warm, breathy tone. Uh, Kozlov sneaking the bow in there again for the final note. Um, so another great release from Art Hirahara. It's an inspired set of original compositions with a lot of variety of feels, meters, interesting arrangements. Uh, McCausland's sax playing adds uh, fire to the melodies and solos. His flute on the last track was a nice contrast to the sax sound too. Uh, Hirahara's solos are, as always, creative and exciting, uh, mixing lines of sophisticated articulation and rhythmic chords. And Royston and Kozlov must be able to read each other's minds by this point. <laughs> they play together so often. They lock everything in tightly, and infusing little touches and fills that give you more to discover on every listen. So all I can say is, uh, more please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, was, all the time, yeah. it was good okay symbiosis was the standout uh, track for me i really mm. enjoyed that and i like you know here how hot is playing we like it so much it's he's pleasantly warm he gets a rich sound out of the instrument via his chord voicings and i like his playing all the playing on the album all right now that my i did have a problem with this album though and it's the production now it's a produced album. It's not really so live sounding, but all the instruments sound really rich and uh, full, and you know you, you get a sense of their tone, mm. except for the drums. And this bugged me. It's obviously a sound they chose, but it kind of, the drums have this kind of canned sort of quality to them, I guess, so they don't like overpower everything oh, else. Okay. And that that kind of that, that kind of got to me. But I wanted to hear the drums and all their kind of you know you know any, any kind of propulsion they were going to give hmm. but i feel like it the effect that they had was blunted by the recording and i think it's obviously a sound that they chose i mean i don't think that's it's a, a fault of the engineer or anything like that but just my personal opinion on that the record okay. the, the, the album itself sounds good but i just thought the drums were kind of overproduced I, sh I think they should have been allowed to breathe more yeah. so there you go i have a caveat there <laughs> <laughs> We're a big fan of this pianist. I like. I did like the music on this album, though. So, yeah, I you know I really like to hear Art Hirohara's solos, but I also like to hear him accompany too. You know, so on the mm. recordings where he's a sideman, yeah, his backing and uh, listening and sort of feeding into other players is always really great. Yeah, so this is just a player I like to hear more and more of. So, all right. So there you have it. All American jazz. Well, with players from around. The world uh, joining in, coming to you all from the United States selections this week. Indeed. And, uh, we heard American rags and other riches. Yeah. Well, we've there done so much international things. We've got to uh, get some American <laughs> stuff in there, too. Yeah. Of course. Every once in a while. I don't know. We've got to get some of those American uh, classical things in there, too. I think next week's going to be uh, American, too, because I think it's time to get those organ recordings out. Well, well for you, I'm only going to yeah. have one organ recording, but I'll have some other stuff, too. Yeah. I'm going to go instrumental theme, then get those 
organ releases you know they three of them came out almost all at once and um, you know okay, we love organs cool. so it's time I think to... I know one of them is the uh, Brian Charette has to be yeah right? it's Brian because we like him yeah. a lot I, yeah. I've actually heard that album already I liked yeah. it yeah, yeah it's really energetic too really good so yeah. get those out you know, the summer's just begun I'm excited indeed it Lots has to listen to yeah <laughs> all right so there you have it episode 75 of adult music all american fun here uh next week we'll have some organ and uh other interesting things going on as well yeah we have jazz organ we're gonna have one classical organ release and then i'm gonna have just some odds and ends after that all right. so that see. sounds fun anyway uh remember you can uh get that playlist after you, you listen to this episode that'll be up on deezer and uh, also put it on uh, Facebook. Uh, you can link to the Deezer from there uh, following the publishing of this uh, episode. So uh, please uh, do uh, like or subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us on. We appreciate that. Uh, check us out on Facebook. You can get in touch uh, by email, Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And thanks again to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Uh, always catches the eye and we'll see you again next week for episode 76 for organ and other assorted treats uh anything yeah. final to uh, close out there mike just thanks for listening as always we love having you and we hope you'll come back all right so keep listening and we'll see you again next time